All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and worship God with you and now share the word of God with you. Um, there are some very exciting times in our lives, and I do believe that gathering together on Sunday service for service is really an important and pivotal time for us in our lives. So I praise God for that, that we can do uh, this very thing, that we can worship God sing his praises, and listen to his word right now. And today we'll be going over 1 Samuel chapter 8, the entire chapter. And so that will be 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. And if you have a pew Bible, which should be in the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 216. And when you have found it, please rise with me in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the years of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. In my years of pastoral training, 
there were some things that were taught as conventional wisdom. And some of them were good, and I adhere to them to this day. Things like, read a lot of books. There is no such thing as a free lunch. And of course, haters gonna hate. There are other things, however, that were taught under the guise of conventional wisdom. But after more study, research, and contemplation, these things, albeit they were conventional, they were not wisdom at all. In fact, it is precisely because of certain particular practices that families and churches and society at large have fallen to disarray. This might sound extreme, I don't think anyone here now listening to me would disagree that we live in socially extreme times. And one of those things was that you shouldn't talk about, from the pulpit, sex, money, or politics. And conventional wisdom would teach that if you had to speak, if you have to speak on any of these topics, then what you do is you get someone from outside your church to preach on it. But if you have been with me for any such time, then you know that this is something that I don't like to do, and I preach on these topics quite often. Whenever the scriptures mention sex, I mention sex, money then money. And today this chapter is chock full of that last one. And I don't think the scriptures shy away from any topic, especially when it's necessary for our well-being and flourishing. And praise God for that. We will be lost if not for his word. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. God's word reveals the path that we should take, but also reveals to us the status of our own souls. His word is also a mirror to our soul. And I have found that the people that want to talk about sex the least have a real problem with sex. People who don't want me to mention money at all have a real problem with money. And people who don't like discussing politics is because they are set in their ways. Politics is not a bad word or dirty word. It simply is the understanding of governing bodies within the public sector. You could have office politics, church politics, local politics, but usually when someone mentions the word politics, what they mean is national politics. And to me, this has always been a fascinating topic of study. Why are some people so averse to the idea of ever bringing it up at the dinner table while others can't stop talking about it on any platform they're given. And I personally believe that both these kinds of people before aforementioned are extremely political. Whether you never want to talk about it or you just can't help but to talk about it, I believe they are extremely political. And you could always listen to our podcast for any kind of elaboration on that. But the fact of the matter is that more and more we are being inundated with political news, media, our feeds, etc. 
And it comes in the form of social justice, to racial justice, to economic justice, to environmental justice, to other nonsensical terms like these. But it's this idea, it ultimately boils down to this idea that we must be on the, quote, right side of history, unquote. Our young people are being bludgeoned with this phrase to force allegiance to a movement or cause. Because if you don't adopt these causes, you'll be on, quote, the wrong side of history, meaning that you'll be placed in the same camp as Nazis or flat earthers and just the worst kind of people. So you need to be on the right side of history because then you can enjoy being on the side of the good. You're counted among the angels. And in the future, you'll be remembered with all this thanksgiving. You'll be given homage for your bravery. This is a misnomer. There is no right side or wrong side of history. There is only objective morality. Time is linear and history is progressive. What that means is it's going somewhere. We are going somewhere. And the one that determines that standard, the one that defines what is good and evil, will assert his divine prerogative to separate the righteous from the wicked, the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. I understand in modern-day vernacular, goat is a good thing, standing for the greatest of all time. But in the Bible, it is not a good thing. It is anything but. It stands for going to hell for all time. But history has an author. And the judge we have read has written himself into the story midway through. We do not need to wait for the end or some event to pass for us to know where we stand. He has already given us his terms of atonement and peace. Our faith and our allegiance is to the one who was and is and is to come. It is only to him our knees bow down, and it is only by his blood that we are set free from the corruption of this world to the everlasting presence of the Father. We are progressing. It's either to eternal life or eternal death. And those that are in the fold of God, he disciplines, he guides, and he corrects. Through his loving kindness, you see God sanctifying his church, his bride, cleansing her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or any wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And that's from Ephesians 5. And what does this? The word of God does this. It reveals to us our sin while showing how God means to transform us. And sometimes, perhaps many times, it can be painful. The narrative set this morning from verses 1 to 3 is seemingly a familiar one if you have been following along with us through the past weeks. Although Samuel's death isn't recorded until chapter 25, he is referenced here as being of old age, advanced in age. The order of judges is passing and the new order of kings 
is dawning. This is a transition chapter. But while Samuel is judging, meaning that he is leading at Ramah and its nearby towns, his two sons, Joel and Abijah, and Joel and Abijah were appointed as judges in Beersheba. They had great names. Joel and Abijah are great names. Joel means the Lord is God. It's, it's the flip of Elijah. So, Jah, you put that in front of Eli and then you get Joel. But Joel means the Lord is God. And Abijah means my father is the Lord. But they lived a far cries away from what was in, in accordance to the meaning of their great names. They didn't follow their father's footsteps, but they turned aside after gain, taking bribes and perverting justice. In the Hebrew language, the words turned aside and pervert are the exact same words, and it means to deviate, to deviate. So whenever leaders take bribes or believe that they are working for this kind of ill-gotten gain, justice becomes twisted. You cannot have leaders beholden to those that offer them money. Imagine thinking that you're paying your pastor and now he is beholden to you and he must preach what you want to hear and not what the word of God says. Imagine you have a political system where big donors could move and dictate political platforms. You will be living in corruption. And this is exactly what happened to Samuel's sons in Beersheba. Ironically, Samuel's two sons were just as wicked as Eli's two sons. The only difference being that Samuel was in Ramah, which was 57 miles north of Beersheba. And so there was quite some distance between them. And while the distance may have absolved Samuel of direct complicity of his son's evil deeds, it did not mean that the perversion of justice didn't cause real harm to those that they were supposed to care for, to those that were under his care, those that were under the care of Joel and Abijah. So these three verses now are the backdrop to the rest of this chapter. And so I only have two points this morning because I want to split this into two parts. And the first one, first point is passion. The second uh, point is immunity or pie because we just had pie day. But passion, we have a passion for cheap imitations from verses four to eight. The elders of Israel came together. Samuel was getting old. A transition is inevitable. And his sons were like Eli's, meaning they were scoundrels and wretches. No one wanted to be stuck with these kind of folk. And so they had a solution. And they thought it seemed plausible. I mean, who wouldn't, right? They were thinking, this isn't working. There is more crime, more hate, more disunity, more disparity. What we need is more government. We need bigger government. That's the ask. That's the ask. They say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Before, they didn't have that kind of government. The local municipalities or the towns, they were people who judged themselves, pretty much. 
except for when Samuel will go by and be that ultimate judge or teach them about the word of God. And it's important we hear God's analysis to this task, or to this ask, rather. He says that it's not Samuel that they have rejected, but it's God that they have rejected from being king over them. And this is what the Israelites have done since he brought them out of Egypt to this very day. They would forsake God and serve other idols. That's what they mean when they are doing this to Samuel as well. Bigger government or the king that they want isn't merely a substitute for Samuel, who they are not satisfied with, but they want a king as a substitute for God. What we are seeing here is just the same old idolatry with a new dress. It's the same thing underneath, just wearing different clothes. Now, the demand for a king, that demand itself isn't necessarily wrong. It wasn't right, and it wasn't wrong. However, it was permissible according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, excuse me, chapter 17 from verses 14 to 20, if you care to read it on your own. But there the scriptures indicate that there might come a time when people will say, Quote, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That's exactly what they said in 1 Samuel. And Deuteronomy continues on stating the guidelines for such a procedure. But Deuteronomy, in continuing on, shows us that the king will not be like anything like the other nations that are around them. The king is someone that God will choose, an Israelite, not a foreigner. No royal perks like horses, which are equivalent to military machines. They will not have multiple wives or massive wealth. They were to be subservient to the law of God, and so on and so forth. So the request itself wasn't bad. We can say the request is adiaphora. It's the motive behind the request that was bad that is being pointed out here. I'll qualify this in a bit but it's not necessary. The want of big government, that is the problem. It's not necessarily the want of big government that is the problem. It's the motive behind it. If we go to chapter 12, we see Samuel going over salvation that the Israelites received from Yahweh. First, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They cried out to God, and what did God do? God would send Moses and Aaron. Second, Israel forgets God and oppressors come. God sends them deliverance through the judges. Now there's a third time they see Nahash the Ammonite go against them. The Israelites don't cry out for God. They cry out for a king. The third time was different because in the first two instances, Israelite, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, but this time they cry out for a king. The help that they sought was not in the strong arm of God, but in the form of new and big government. It's not the system of government that is necessarily evil, but trust in the government is. When the U.S. would fight the Revolutionary War against the British, what would arise from the ranks 
and the reported mottos of the revolution was quite unique from any other revolutionary war, from any other war period. And one of them was to have been reported, uh, was reported to have been no king but Jesus. Modern historians now, meaning historians past 2010, want to refute this all of a sudden. And I'll be surprised if this actual historical fact was taught in schools today. But among the many influential literatures that were written during the time of the revolution was one by Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense. If you're older, you might have read that in your elementary or middle school years. Well, I don't know how many uh, young people have read Thomas Paine or Common Sense in uh, school today. But in it, he wrote this. I'm going to quote a little portion of that writing. But where, say some, is the king of America? I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Great Britain, yet that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors, let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming uh, the charter. Let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed thereon, by which the world may know that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America law is king. For as in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries that law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. But lest any ill use should afterwards arise, let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people whose right it is. Our founding fathers believed that statement to the core. On hearing that George Washington would resign his commission and retire from power, the king said that if this is true, now this is King George III, the king would say that if that was true, that George Washington would really retire from being president and give up uh, his power because what he really wanted to do was go back to his ranch and horses, right? If that was true, King George III would say that Washington was the greatest man in the world. Washington had the loyalty of every single army brigade and citizen of the entire nation. No one in Europe was surprised when Washington became president. But the man that can give up all of that on principle blew everyone away. There's a reason why the common motto for our military, even today, is still pro dea et patria, which means for God and country, instead of for king and country. But ironically, we too in our nation, as we abandon God more and more, you see this as we want more and more bigger and bigger government. So as we look at chapter 8, it shows how the demand for a king was really the rejection of God. This is in direct contrast with chapter 7, where in her emergency and helplessness, Israel repented leaned in on prayer and hoped solely on God and thereby found deliverance. In chapter 7, there was no king. There was only one intercessor. And if chapter 7 is there to contrast chapter 8, chapter 4 is there as a parallel where, where they use the ark to man, try and manipulate God into serving them. Here, 
it is in the form of politics in chapter 8, where they are substituting that for God. It is the same idolatry. And instead of only getting frustrated with Israel's stubbornness, as we see from chapter to chapter, I believe that it is good to pause and ponder the full instruction that the scriptures have for us. And there are three warnings that we can see here in this chapter. Number one, we can be given into pragmatism. Pragmatism is basically going with what works. If it quote-unquote works, then it must be true. That's pragmatism. This is why we have seeker-sensitive churches believing that if we could just get them through the doors, if we could just play the right kind of music, turn down the lights, and have that altar call, they can get hundreds of uh, thousands of followers on social media, then it must be good. But what this, lead to, what this leads to and what it has led to is relativism. That's why we see all these people from seeker-sensitive churches now leading the movement to deconstructionism. This kind of belief system is what you have that works for you. This is what eventually happens. What works for you doesn't necessarily work for me. So pragmatists, in effect, become agnostics. Whether ultimate or transcendent truth exists, that's not the point. It just needs to work. And so the definition of truth must then be redefined. Pragmatism embraced says that if the LGBTQ lifestyle works for me, then I must then gain power to silence those that are saying that my behavior is unacceptable and hindering human flourishing. Because ultimately, they are the hindrance to my enjoyment. Pragmatism will look for immediate solutions without looking to consider what those solutions will do to us in the long run. And many, and if not most of the time, it will be disastrous. Number two, instead of asking or looking to God for help, there is a tendency to tell God what we need. We become the prescribers. Instead of recognizing that God is the one who specifies the methods in which we are saved, he is the one who dictates wisdom. We want to be the one that tells him how we should be saved. This is a sure sign that we are content with a saving God until we can dictate our terms and conditions to him. And if not, we are not content. This is an insistence that we are wiser than God. We know more than him. And we can live a better life on our own accord. Maybe we just need some assistance from time to time. We then aren't looking for God. We are looking for an assistant. Believing only then... If only I had this little assistant next to me, I would be fulfilled. We believe that we are almost perfect. We just need that little extra push. You just need that little extra video to hype you up in the morning. You need that little extra oomph to get you going. Then you're good. Perhaps you aren't pragmatists, but perhaps you are 
this kind of person where you don't think you really need God either, just every once in a while, living by axioms like, God helps those who help themselves. You know, God helps those who help themselves is probably the most quoted phrase attributed to the Bible that's actually not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. And yet many people attribute it to the Bible. The Bible actually teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that God helps the helpless. In Romans 5, 6, it says, While we were still weak or helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And number three is this, and this one is a little bit more difficult to discern, but Israel's request for a king, while it may have been rational, God viewed it as rejecting his kingship. Our proposals, solutions, and answers to certain situations can seem completely reasonable, clearly logical, and conceivably plausible, and at the same time be utterly godless. Sometimes our idolatry is so sophisticated and it appears so reasonable that it actually can be difficult to detect. But the Lord sees through it all. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And that's from Isaiah 55, 9. So if that really is the case, how could you ever know if it's that subversive How would you ever know if you're in idolatry? Well, we just read the very next verses of Isaiah 55. In 10 and 11, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The answer is to trust in God's word because God's word does not fail. The second word, or the second point, is immunity. And it's immunity to wisdom. We see this from verses 9 to 22. God then tells Samuel to give to the people what they ask, but also to warn them of the cost that this ask will entail. Samuel warned Israel what it would be like under a king. God told him to spell it out for them, so he does. These things that Samuel mentions weren't extraordinary things. They were actually common and usual practices of kingship. And it could have been more abusive, but the things that he's saying, this is the normal stuff. The Israelites ask Samuel to appoint a king, and now Samuel uses that word appoint now in a much harsher sense, twice. The king that you want me to appoint will appoint or make them serve as soldiers, he would say. And Samuel uses the words he will take again and again. The king will take The king will take, he will take. He will take what is precious to you for himself, whether it be your sons, daughters, your crops, 
the fruit of your labor, your money, and even your own servants. He's giving them fair warning. Think of your sons. They'll be drafted as soldiers. They'll die in the wars that old men want to fight. Think of your daughters. They'll be taken as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Government work, they'll call it. Think of your finest fields and lands that you own. He'll take them for himself or give them out to his servants. And even if you have crop left over, he'll take them for himself. He'll give them to his servants. Ever hear of taxes? You know, I absolutely hate our tax system in the United States, but that's another story. But he'll take a tenth minimum is what he's saying. He'll take a tenth minimum to feed his own servants. And he'll even want your servants for himself. But in verse 19, it says that the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Instead of listening to the wisdom that would have prevented them from falling into folly, they were staunchly set in their trajectory. This example of stubbornness should teach us. We have all this information in 2022. We have more access to information than we have ever had before. And so our lives should be better, right? Shouldn't our lives be better? And yet our average life expectancy has not increased. You know, it was 70-something in 100 BC. And you know, today, still now, it's 70-something. That's the average life expectancy, albeit it's now in the upper 70s. But you would have thought like people in 100 BC, they must have been like dragging their clubs or something. They must have lived like until they were 35. That's not true. But we think that because of all this information, we are actually better. And this is what we call the education fallacy. We think that once we know something or are, in, are educated in something, we will know exactly what to do. What we fail to account for is intrinsic stupidity. And this, by the way, exists in all areas of science and study. Information may educate, but information cannot transform. Wisdom was given, but Israel refused to submit to it. Perhaps like a parent who is exasperated at their child, who refuses to listen. And, and maybe it's like that parent who just gives them the thing that's just not good for them. You know, God sometimes giving us our request, the thing that we're so desperately wanting, if he gives it to us, would be at our own peril. God granting us our requests is not always a sign of favor, but sometimes it could be a sign showing us of our stubbornness and pride. Then perhaps God's greatest kindness comes in the form of him not answering some of our prayers in the way we want. It's common in young people when they desperately want to marry or date someone. I need to marry this person or I'm going to die. <laughs> and so the married person counseling them, perhaps speaking from experience themselves too, will start with, little do you know. Little do you know. A mom who liked to bake was in the kitchen one day and her kid comes up to her wanting to taste all the ingredients in the recipe, recipe, I mean, quite naturally. 
And there was this one ingredient in the recipe that had this wonderful aroma. But her mom would tell her daughter no. And to her daughter, it made no sense. Why would her mom keep her from tasting such a wonderfully sweet-smelling aroma, uh, sweet-smelling ingredient? And so she asked, and when that didn't work, she whined. And when that didn't work, she badgered. And when that didn't work, she harassed her mom until her mom just gave her a spoonful of vanilla extract. And that's when she didn't ask again. You know, what's the difference between knowing the truth and knowing the truth? What's the difference between someone going, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but still not doing the thing that they ought to do and someone who knows and actually does the thing that they ought to? The difference is between being given the truth and throwing it away and being given the truth and loving it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, it says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Only when you love the truth will you obey it. When you are given instruction and wisdom, but do not heed or submit to it, it means that you are not teachable. Our prayer must be that we have to cry out. That's what our prayer has to be. We have to cry out to God to soften our hearts, to give us a teachable spirit, that we may be saved from our own stupidity. Proverbs twelve fifteen is right. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. You know, the people of God are unique by definition. When has any other people group been saved in the manner Israel has? Has there been any other nation saved by another nation bludgeoning like their hard-hearted oppressors with the raw and sheer power of God? This is what God did to the Egyptians. And then God would set apart his people to be holy, set apart that they are not like the other nations. That's why when the elders asked for a king like the other nations, it wasn't just an ask for ruler. It wasn't simply an ask for big government. It was an ask for ruler other than God. The people couldn't take being holy. Being set apart is too difficult for them. Why do we have to do this when all these other people are doing that? Because who wants to stand out in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation? Who wants to stay pure in their marriages when no one else is staying pure? Who wants to stay chaste when no one else is being chaste before they get married? Why enjoy God when we could have self-indulgence and mindless entertainment like everyone else? But the people of God, those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they have been called to be set apart for his glory to show others and the world what it means to know the truth and love the truth, to have our feet 
set alight by that truth and not stumble when we walk, to have Yahweh as perfect king and judge over our lives instead of cheap imitations, to have a, to have a true God reign in us and not idols that perish. That is what the people of God have been called to. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded here in your word that we are people with inappropriate and lustful passions, that we are immune to the wisdom that has been given to us by your word. We think we know better many times, and perhaps we give lip service to the wisdom and to the allegiance that we should offer to you, but our bodies do not follow. Oh God, forgive us of our stubbornness, and now we repent and ask God that you would change and transform our hearts for something that's something only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. Transform us, that we would not perish with a perishing world, that we would be forever and eternally with you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's take this time to pray.